Every time I fly into Chicago at night, I'm amazed by the grid I see out of the portal. Those hundreds of thousands of almost identical lots, 25 by 125 feet, that are made visible by the city's 250,000-odd streetlights, block after block, all sprawling westward out of the darkness of Lake Michigan, like a dream of Euclidean order. I'm amazed because it's so unnatural, so not the way we make sense of the places where we live our everyday lives. The grid is the living image of an abstract ideal, that a place can be quantified, cut up, understood, and settled. The truth is very different, especially in a city like Chicago. Places are wild. Their paths rear up and reveal themselves. Their foundations give way. In all their layered complexity, contradiction, and intractability, places are about as quantifiable as people. A fact Barry Jean Borich makes explicit in her new book, Body Geographic. Borich sets out to map not only the city of Chicago and the other places she and her family have lived, but also to discover the hidden geographies in her own skin, the personal and collective histories, the experiences and desires that make her who she is. The result is a book that's insightful, lyrically beautiful, and uncompromising in its search for a self as rich as the cities in which she lives. Barry Jean Borch, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. I'm so, I'm so excited to be oh, on your program. Well, we're looking forward to talking with you about this new book out from the University of Nebraska Press. It's called Body Geographic, and it's, it's a stunning book. It's uh, beautiful, but it's more than beautiful. It's, it's powerful and raw and steely-eyed in the way it moves forward, and I'm looking forward to chatting about it. Um, what I'd like to do right now, though, is just to, to give some of our listeners a sense of, of you as an artist and as a person and maybe some of the, the background that brought you to this project. Would you be willing to share that with us? Sure. Um, this project is one that I worked on for quite a few years, and, and in many ways I think it's the book that I have wanted to write since I began to, to write. Uh, I started out as a poet, and uh, if I go back into my, you know, when I was writing in my 20s, if I go back to some of my early poems, I find some of the questions that I deal with in Body Geographic that have to do with place and identity and, and ethnic history and cultural history. Um, I, I was, I've always been attempting to write about these subjects and have been, uh, uh, I've digressed. You know, my first book was about um, sort of, Coming out and getting sober and growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, a book called Restoring the Color of Roses that Firebrand published when I was quite young. My second book, My Lesbian Husband, um, was about living in a long-term lesbian marriage, which is also something that just you know, came to me at a time right, right before that issue became the huge national issue it is today. But in the back of my mind, there was still this book I wanted to write because I was living in Minnesota. I'd grown up in Chicago. I missed Chicago in these unreasonable, constant ways. And I wanted to write about what that is to miss a place and why that was important, even though it felt kind of unsupportable that that I kept thinking about Chicago. So that's how I came to writing about this place and about maps and about uh, uh, migration and, and uh, uh, the, the the topography of the Midwest, the urban Midwest. So I think one of the first things that that 
that I realized as I began entering into the book um, is that you think about place much differently uh, than we might just by default as we're, you know, negotiating our lives and getting from place to place or something like that. Could you give us a little sense of, of what place means in terms of this artistic project for you? Um, well, well, place is both actual and metaphorical in this project for me. And that was just something that came to me in the writing, um, how I think about place. I think about place as um, uh, uh, both the land itself and also, you know, uh, history, culture, everything that happened in a place. I'm very interested in geographers who interrogate um, how the meaning of place is like a palimpsest of everything that ever happened there and, and the people who've moved in and out of a place. So, so there's that kind of um, uh, connection to place. But also, as I was writing Body Geographic, which is about um, uh, uh, identity and the body and um, how moving to a place changes you and how how you change places when you move to them. Uh, as I was writing it, uh, the realities of life that had to do with what place meant to me at midlife really interrupted my process. And so place and the middle and the middle of America became a metaphor too, for what it meant to be in the middle of life and negotiating between place as a source of possibility as a source of change and place as just the gritty reality of what places are on a day-to-day level. So those are the, the two aspects of place that I think intermingle in my work. Yes, and, and I think that um, the answer you gave is, is very intellectual and very smart, and I, I would definitely describe the book that way. It's also very gritty and very visceral, and uh, you open with an image of how place and the body intersect uh, that also appears on your website. Uh, that, oh, you want me to talk about tattoos? I, tattoos, <laughs> my goodness, yes, and blood yes, I, and bone and pain. <laughs> yes, that's well, that's the body part of it. That's, there, there's the body part of it. Yes, I have places tattooed on my body. I have a uh, merged skyline of the city of Chicago and the city of Minneapolis, uh, tattooed on my back and that's what I opened the book with. I opened the book with the story of getting that tattoo. A tattoo I got because of this these this uh, issue I've had my whole life of moving between Minneapolis and Chicago and how that city became almost one city to me. And so, um, uh, yes, on the visceral bloody um, body level, I got a pain I got a painful tattoo on my on my on my back. It's not painful anymore. It was painful to to uh, uh, the process of getting the tattoo was painful, and that's the story I entered the, the book with. Um, since that time, I also have I also have a map tattooed on my arm. Um, that's uh, one of the maps that are that's in the book, and that's the tattoo you saw on my book trailer, um, which is the, a tattoo of the map of the meandering Mississippi, which is a map of of change and um, moving shorelines. So. And uh, and just so listeners don't think I, I'm only interested in learning <laughs> stories of tattoos, well, of course I am. Um, how does that become then a window that opens up the book? Because the the tattoo in some ways is a, a kind of a signature opening image that that sets out the stakes of the book as we go into it. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I guess that the um, 
that the, the tattoo represents the the way I think about place as something that just kind of breaks the skin, um, breaks the barriers of who you are, that um, the, the compulsion to be tattooed. And I don't know, do you have tattoos? I don't. Yeah, the, <laughs> I know there's people who people who have tattoos. Um, I think everyone I've talked to who has a, a, a who has a tattoo um, or has tattoos uh, uh, has had a similar understanding of of what they mean to them. People who don't often think it's nuts, but but and I I understand that. But there's something about getting tattooed that has to do with um, the desire to understand and to imprint the meaning and the, 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 the emotional, you know, blood and guts meaning of, of, of what matters to you uh, on your body. And so I think that's the motivation for getting this tattoo uh, on my back and getting maps tattooed and, um, and, and other parts of my body. I have uh, uh, plants that are native to places I've been or the place I went to graduate school, et cetera, on my body. There's, there's a way that I've been, uh, I've invited um, markings on my body to kind of bring to the surface what, what I want, um, what I feel like I carry, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful image for the book because the book, uh, I want to try to give listeners a picture of, of how the book is structured and operates. And I'm sure you're going to be able to clarify this, but my, my initial impression is it's as though it's a compendium of, of maps and maps underneath maps and maps that overlayer from different figures that appear throughout the, the scope of the narrator's life. And, and, um, and so you get this dense sense of, of layering that takes place um, as the structuring principle of the book. Right. Right. And if you've ever been to um, um, really historic cities like Rome, for instance, and you go to the souvenir shops, they usually have map books that, you know, you turn the pages and you, you see the city um, at a different, at a different time in history. In Rome, for instance, you can, you know, open the book and see the picture of Rome today. And then, but, but, but with, then turn the page and see a map of what it was a hundred years ago and turn the page and see what it was 500 years ago. And so that's that sense of, of map as palimpsest uh, is very interesting to me because it feels to me um, the way our life in places exists, you know, that you have your life now as, as it is now, but everything that happened before uh, seeps through, you know, comes up from the bottom, uh, and th- that's one of my interests in maps, and that's what my interest in the in just the word palimpsest. So that's one of the operative images of both the idea of the book and the form of the book. Yes, I think it allows you. You know, we we often talk about one of the things that we value in a work of literature is its depth, and usually that invokes a psychological model, right? Are you going, you know, beyond the surface truth to something much deeper? And I think this allows you to get at what depth means from a different angle and to bring in, you know, social and physical history of the places that you lived as well as the psychological truth that you're trying to get at, um, right. by mixing those right. two together. Right. Right. Um, would you like me to read a little bit from the opening section since we're talking about it to give a sense of, 
That sounds perfect. What, what I mean by maps. Okay. Um, the, the book as, it's, as a whole uh, is, I see it as a kind of atlas. So each essay in the book is a, is a map and it's formed as a map. Um, so I have, I have like road maps with incest, in, insects and I have um, uh, palimpsest maps and I have triptychs and it opens up with the map legend. And this is the tattoo piece we were talking about. And, I'll read from two different sections of this piece, and it's called Legend, My Body as the Middle West. Scale, the measure of one woman's body, equals the distance between two cities. The body, I'm face down on the table as he needles my lower back. The tattoo gun hums and my neck and shoulders clench. Though I can't see him, I feel his presence behind me. The pain maps I consulted told me this tattoo should not hurt as much as it does. I don't remember such sharp pain with the others, the leopard on my shoulder, the amber rose on my ankle, the blossoming branch on my forearm. Yet I'm not crying. I am not moving. I am trying to vanish into this wash, which I do for long pauses that end abruptly. As he works, I can't help but notice how unusual it is for me to be so close to a man. I am a woman who prefers women, have been married to Linnea now for over two decades, have not been this intimate with a dude in years. Ordinarily, such proximity to anyone I don't know makes me nervous. I'm not one to get a massage. I warm slowly to new chiropractors and doctors. I was slow to learn the Minnesota hug, though have an easier time hugging women than men. A man... Leaning over my exposed backside is not my is not typical in my day to day. Tattoos are boundary breaking situations. This new charting across my middle in more than one way remaps me. But the work he's doing hurts. Just as I begin to consider rearing up and slapping the tattoo gun out of his hand, he finally lifts the needle. This rush of absence feels like love. The map. One drunken night when I was newly in love. My then-lover and I stood in a public restroom in South Minneapolis, looking into a streaked mirror. I stared at my own face with the devotion of the drunken and whispered to my lover that my eyes, nose, and mouth looked to me like a map. It was the sort of thing my lover liked to talk about, that a woman's face looks like the map of Eastern Europe, she'd say about some stunningly unconventional beauty or other we'd meet in passing, and I must have wished for her to say the same about me. We were young, me only 23, and often drunk or stoned and prone to believe all manner of unlikely things about our lives in our mostly women's new world, the lesbian nation, a floating country with invisible borders that my lover, nine years older than I, had arrived at first. I suppose I was trying to impress her, trying to get her to see me better, and indeed I was pleased when she nodded and told me she did see it too, my face made from the copper stones of some beautiful old country. Maps within the map. Maps obscure more than they reveal because their flatness is contrary to the layered experience of living. Maps are representational, but life is lived in the body, is dimensional, has voice and history. So every map can't help but contain other maps, areas of detail requiring special attention, even when the insects don't show. The body, my body, is a stacked atlas of memory. If we think the middle of our lives are flat, we mistake surface for substance. The geography. 
the actual woman's body in the middle of her life is neither map nor archetype. It's both settlement and frontier. I choose now at age 50 to treat the surface of my back as a cartographer's canvas. I stretch out on the tattooing table. My body clutches and shivers. The artist inks a dual skyline, my Chicago in the center, my Minneapolis to either side. The infrastructure of that sharp black ink stings worse than I imagined it could. Linnea squeezes my hand, but again I shoo her away. I came here to pull all my maps to the surface, not just a drunk girl's hallucination this time, but a marking more permanent. Of course it hurts when he maps me in my history. And that's when we launch into the book? Mm-hmm. It's a lovely opening, and it's, uh, I think yeah. that moment of, of, of pain and knowledge coming together and reclamation of oneself um, is a good... To, a good, a good way to think about what comes. Um, but I'm wondering if you can give us, or us the listeners, a sense of, of what they encounter after that, after that initial introduction as the, the piece unfolds. Um, it's not a cradle-to-grave memoir. No. <laughs> no. Um, it, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite nonlinear. Um, and it, it, goes, it moves around um, in several in, in several regions, I'd say one is um, has to do with uh, Chicago city history and midwestern city history, and um, um, what it, what it what it once once meant, what the whole world middle middle west midwest and middle west meant, you know, when Chicago was a frontier. So that's the kind of historical level. Um, the personal level has has. Con- Two directions. One is my the immigration story from my family, which my um, some members of my family were, were immigrants from Croatia. It's always been a strong um, ethnic identity in my family, um, so I tell some of those stories, most of which are speculative because these are people who um, I, I never met. And um, on the other side of that is the uh, a lesbian uh, kind of coming out and coming to identity story, and just the the world of of queer, lesbian, gay, genderqueer, you know, that whole world of new invention and new possibility, which from the start of this project, I was really interested in positing those two stories against each other. The, the um, American immigration story, you know, as we've all learned it, and this other kind of American uh, migration story that's, you know, the queer story, which is, you know, as we all know, in the debates of today is seen as this, you know, um, you know, um, wrong and anti-American thing in some quarters, but is of course the most American thing of all because it's about it's about remaking and reinvention. So those are the stories I tell. I still tell lots of um, um, uh, uh, kind of you know sex and drug stories and um, and sexual discovery stories and sexual and, and um, uh, in, you know self investigation stories. So all to say, yes, there's sex in the book, <laughs> and but I also tell family stories, and I also tell stories of of, of uh, talking to my father about what what identity means to him, and what his relationship to his mother means to him, and what jazz means to him, and what it means to make choices different than the choices your parents wanted you to make. Um, and so yeah, that's the that's that's the story. And if there's if there's an arc, it's not a narrative arc. It's an arc of of uh, you know reckoning, coming to terms with um, how all of these stories kind of come together in my body. 
I think I think that that rings true to my experience of reading it, and I think part of it is it. it's almost a reclamation in the sense of, well, you know, you had spoken earlier about the fact that that you see the book as an atlas, and there's a passage in the book where you talk about countermapping America and the American mm-hmm. body against, and you put this in quotes, you know, the true and accurate atlas right. um, that any woman of your generation is supposed to follow, and so there's a sense of right. of pulling you know, the American story and the story of the self back onto one's own terms and making sense of what's there for oneself. Um, right. and I, I found that curious over and against the number of maps that you produce, historical maps that show up in the book, um, in which America or a part of Europe is, is completely gendered as a woman, that the map right, is right. in the shape of a woman. Um, and you see visually that struggle that the book is is taking on oh oh good i'm glad i'm glad that that conveys to you you know those maps just completely captivated me and i you know this book did not start out in the map form it started out as as uh, just these intersecting forms that had to do with place in the body place in the body place in the body and at one point i remember going to my writing group and saying this was very early on saying I think I'm going to call my book geography. And uh, there, there was a lover of geography in the, in the book group who was like, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. And we got all excited about that. Um, but as, as I went on and, and just whole, this whole thinking about geography, the meaning of the word geography, being writing about place. Um, and, uh, and then at one point I changed it to autogeographia, you know, so it was almost geography as a woman's body. Um, but the, the body geographic part came um, in at uh, this when I when I realized I was um, also writing about the crisis of body and mortality that comes to most people in the middle of their lives, and when I started to see bodies and maps at the same time, I started to kind of watch for maps that that conveyed this image to me, and that's when I got the idea of actually structuring the pieces as maps, and then. Um, uh, uh, the idea of actually putting the maps in the book came quite late. My agent, when she read the first version of the book, said, this is great, but it needs maps. And I'm like, oh, oh, I could put actual maps in there. And so then I started searching for these maps and going to archival sources and was just amazed at what I found, you know, like the map of Europe in, in the form of a woman's body and um, and those kind of map-like like. Western art pieces like the the one of, of Colombia, um, uh, you know, trudging across the Midwest, you know, bringing 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 you know culture to the plains supposedly. And I started to really think about how women's bodies have been used in the geographical sense to convey notions of of uh, colonialism and um, uh, oceans of of notions of ownership that the women themselves did not possess. You know, the, the women's bodies were representation. And so I started to want to reverse that image and put a real woman's body in that map. So that's, that's something, I think, the deep metaphorical interest I had in those maps and why I was so happy to put them in the book. Yeah, the map made flesh in some ways. Right, right. So one of the things I'd like to bring out, you, you've mentioned the body and the interest in the self and embodiment. Um, and I think your, your book is, is very body affirmative in all the messiness that the body carries. Um, especially the, the powerful ending of the book when you end up, um, 
you know, with the MRI, and we can get to that in a second. But just placing that in the context of the the history of memoir, um, so I'm just thinking, for instance, of Augustine starting this thing off with the Confessions, and mm-hmm. and boy, a body is not a good thing to have. Right, right. A body is the thing to renounce. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of. I mean, you know, um, uh, in you know the the Confessions of Saint Augustine are often thought about as the first memoir, right? Or at least that's how we we talk about it in creative nonfiction classes, even though that's probably, you know, grossly ahistorical, but, but we like to talk about it that way, you know, to kind of claim the memoir of, as this really, really old form. But, uh, uh, I wanted to also reverse that idea of, of the memoir as a redemptive form. You know, there tends to be this canned version of the memoir or which to me sounds canned where the body is something that we might write about vividly as, as, was the case in the confessions, you know, um, um, you know, uh, uh, this is how I was and yeah, well, wow, it was fun and, and, and I want to change, but not yet to that, you know, being struck by lightning in, in the middle of your, the, the middle of your life being struck by lightning converting and then, you know, finding the proper path. I wanted to re- reverse that and and really really reject the idea of redemption or reject the idea that that life follows that kind of neat arc um, and reject the idea that the body is something sh- that should be vanquished you know to to move the body to the forefront of the end of life the, to move the sex positive body to the forefront of the end of life was very very important to me and it was very very important to me not to apologize for that i think women often often apologize for their bodies and their sexualities and and i i wanted to really confront that that in this book and for me one of the the more powerful chapters in which that occurs is toward the end of the book um when linnea goes into the hospital um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that scene. I, I don't know if we've had a proper introduction of Linnea yet. She figures hugely in the book. Yeah, um, Linnea figures hugely in all my books. So um, it's been Linnea's lot in life to be written about. And she seems a very good about sport Linnea. about it. She's a very she's a very good sport about it. I'm really lucky. Students are always asking me, um, what do I do? You know, my, my husband's really upset or my lover's really upset that I'm writing about him or her. What do I do? And it's like, you know... I, you know, all you can do is be gentle, but um, uh, I, I'll just tell you that in my case, I've been lucky. Linnea's hit on it has been like, you know what? I signed up to be with a writer, and and this is this is this is the story I'm I'm living, and um, she's she is the first reader of everything I write. So we often argue about things along the way, but she's never told me not to. Um, well, just there's only one thing that she's told me not to write about, um, uh, which is something that, of course, I won't tell you now. But um, I was going to say, but, don't put it out on the air. Then. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to have a little essay about that, about the thing Linnea told me I can never write about, and um, how frustrating that was when she said it because it seemed it's something that is seemed to me very, very unimportant. How that made me realize that there's always another story you can tell to get at the idea, but, um, but. Through all that, you know, she has been um, just a, a, a champion of being written about. Even when I published my lesbian husband, and she would, we could walk into a coffee shop in Minneapolis together, and people would go, "Look, it's the lesbian husband." 
<laughs> so she has her whole little fame around that. Um, but she she does um, yeah she does tend to factor largely in all of my work and. In this book, um, she factors in as um, part of the narrative of crisis that happens in our lives. And I don't want to give away the, 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 some of the storyline of the book, but there That's is perfectly a, fair. Right. But there is there is a point where we simultaneously um, found ourselves in crises of the body. And um, and there's a there's a there's a map in there that's an actual MRI or an MRI I'm kind of reinscribing as a map that that I use as one of the maps in the book and where we talk about what that turning point was in our lives and it was really a turning point that had the, that's where I really brought the the idea of the city the, the midwestern city and the body in the middle of life together that's what that that's where that image came from that moment of realizing wow, we're as close to the end here, if not closer, than we are to the beginning. And, and how, how does life feel? You know, how do we map this kind of part of our lives? Well, I think that there's, I mean, you talk about the crisis, and I won't give it away either, although I can encourage everyone to go. And, <laughs> and it's not a linear narrative. It's not, and then suddenly this plot point happens. It's very much a, uh, a journey you co-experience with the narrator and you immerse yourself in that kind of depth of feeling and experience. Um, but there is a, a, a constant tension that you're wanting to bring out between, between mapping one's actual experience and its complexity and its messiness in its, in the unknowingness that you face and even trying to, to lay down the map to make sense of it. Um, and the ideal maps that keep coming back again and again, whether it's, in Oz or it's in the great white city. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that generative tension in the work. Well, I'm just, um, I think what you're talking about is the tension between there's a, there's an image, um, uh, that has to do with Chicago in this, that it permeates the book, but it's, it's most prominent in the center of the book. Um, there was the, the, there's a name for, Chicago or an aspect of Chicago is called the white city that has to do with the Columbian exposition, which was the world's fair that happened at the end of the 19th century where the, the world's, the the world's fair um, organizers built a fake city in the middle of Chicago. It's on the site where university of Chicago is now. And it was this gleaming, literally, literally white city in the middle of Chicago at, 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 the advent of the of, of the industrial revolution, and so historically, it fascinates me that there's this here's this dream of the perfect city in the middle of this city where, you know, people were literally losing their lives on a daily basis by by um, being part of the machine of, of what I call the gray city, which is the the industrial part of the city, which is the part of the city my family comes from. My family uh, comes from the southeast side of Chicago, which is where all the steel mills were at the height of the steel industry. And so, um, so I had this idea of you know the white city being the real city's dream of itself. That was that was an image I actually I was trying to figure out what what my interest was when I was running. Why did I keep coming back to this? And I actually I'm not a visual artist at all, but I actually drew a picture where I where I 
drew a picture of the city and gave it a little thought bubble and said, you know, the white, what the white city is, the real city's dream of itself. And that was my breakthrough moment of understanding what it, what it was I was trying to get at. Um, I'll read you a passage from, this is from the piece in the middle of the book. It's called Cities of Possibility. Um, and uh, it, it's, it plays with that image and also tells a little bit of a, of a story. So all cities are really double cities, the city itself and another city, the city of possibility, a projection of the real, the manifestation, part practical, part erotic, of what we wish for in our lives, or what I wish for. Some people I know pine for wild blue open spaces. It's the possible city, the blue glass city, that I remember when I look back to my first year in Minneapolis, walking all night through the streets alone, or with one of my first and most fleeting friends, a young man I waited tables with for a few months. If I couldn't find lesbians in the late-night restaurant world, gay men were easy enough to come by. When I did see lesbians, the obvious ones, with short hair and loose-fitting jeans, who came into the pub for a burger, they didn't recognize me because I didn't look like them, couldn't bring myself to shave off my long blonde hair. Waitresses in the early 1980s, even in the young uptown joints, needed to look like girls that had any hopes of making tips. Besides, I never felt androgynous enough to adopt the halfway between boy and girl persona that was still the lesbian uniform in 1981. Gay men and I, on the other hand, had long gravitated toward each other. I would have been a fag hag had I stayed straight. My new friend's name was Scott, spelled with three T's. He's never told me if the final T was his own addition, but I assumed so. I'd changed by then into the kind of girl who wore eclectic thrift shop ensembles and lived in cheap city apartments with bad locks. He was the kind of guy who took money from older men and spent his rent on tickets to Diana Ross concerts. If you had asked me then, I would have said I was in that in any friendship with a pretty gay man like Sally Bowles of Cabaret, a fabulous bad girl with funny clothes, a foul mouth, and a pull toward the night. I would have been happy living in some hovel of a city boarding house with dusty draperies and neighbors in trouble, greeting my friends in a lacy camisole, falling in love with boys who didn't sleep with girls. If I couldn't finally decide to be a lesbian, that would do. Scott and I wandered through the sleepy streets of Minneapolis, still then a place that seemed to empty out at night. Life was not a cabaret here, not for Scott or for me. The silence was so deafening we could have been walking through a tunnel. We strolled down the center of Franklin Avenue and rarely met an oncoming car. Today I would be hard-pressed to find, or ma find a major thoroughfare of the city so supernaturally quiet. But in those days in Minneapolis there were fewer people, fewer cars, fewer lights. The blue glass of the IDS tower throbbed dimly, but the windows of all the houses and apartments were dark. Earlier that night, drinking wine in Scott's apartment on the west side of the city, he gave me a ripped red wool jacket with a black satin lining and elastic at the cuffs and waistband. He'd worn it the last time he saw Diana Ross in concert. I wore it that night and then for years more until it was threadbare. I still keep it in my closet decades after I've lost track of Scott. The jacket helps fix him in my memory, a tall boy man, his fine hair curling along the nape of his neck, his fingers more befitting a piano player than a waiter, talking about lovers and apartments and Diana. I'm not certain anymore if he showed me some of Diana's moves, that wave of first the shoulders and then the hips as she approached the mic, her arms flung out to her sides, her flat palms spacing out, stopping all comers in the name of love. 
It may be Diana herself, I remember, as Scott conjured seeing her on the stage, or it may be that Scott showed me with his own arms and hips how she did it. Either way, it was 3 a.m., and while the spotlights were too sporadically spaced to look like spotlights, they still dappled the damp early morning avenue. Scott, me, and the shadow of Miss Diana walked through the night, marking the shadow hours of this little city with our dreams of some bigger, bluer place. So you write that words are maps. And by the way, that was beautiful. And so that's what this question is going to be about. Words are maps and maps say more about where we've been than where we actually reside. The prose style of, of this memoir, um, as I was reading that, I, I thought, can she sustain this over 300 pages or odd <laughs> pages? It, it's lyric and it's keen and it's, it's beautiful without being false. And so I'm curious that as you were working on the the style or the aesthetic of the book, um, what kind of experience were you trying to create for your reader through that stylistic richness? What kind of experience? Um, We're trying to capture it. It's not, you know, it's not a memoir in the flat plain style, you know, speaking kind of everyday truth to an everyday reader. It, It lifts off. Well, and in, in, in truth, um, I consider it. I consider my work to be in in the regions between essay and memoir. So, um, so, so, uh, so, I'm certainly trying to do that attempt thing. You know that we tell our students the essay is about, even as I'm, you know, using using memory as material. And what I'm trying to experience, well, or what I'm trying to to create, the experience I'm trying to create readers I would say I guess it's just just immersion um, you know I think um, I, I, I was very interested in, in a while in the post-impressionist painters that you know, Virginia Woolf hung out with and that idea of that she had of literature creating you know in, impression and experience more so than story and I've, I've long gravitated toward that at you know that that modernist idea of of art, of art bringing forth you know the 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 ex- experience and impression of the world more so than um, a constructed idea of of plot or event, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I think the ideal experience of a memoir would be what it's like to be the self of the narrator who's narrating, as opposed to receiving the information of the narrator's life and how the narrator felt about it. Right. I'm very suspicious of, of, of any linear rendering of, of our lives. I always have been, even my first book, which is probably the most memoir of the, of the things I've written. Even that one is nonlinear. And that one, I was really thinking about film and editing and the early film experiments where, you know, those, uh, those Russian filmmakers who edited really, really disparate things together in order to kind of create meetings, meaning by bringing things that didn't go together together. And that was, so I've always been interested in that kind of experience of literature. And like I said, I started out as a poet, so I've never really thought about a story and plot in the way a novelist does. So, um, but I'm also just, the longer I write nonfiction, the more I'm interested in nonfiction conveying actuality. That's what I tell my students. You know, we have these these debates about, you know, the truthiness debates, you know, about whether, um, whether uh, you know, what, what, whether we can make it up or not. And I think that whole debate really swings on the fact that we're, we're trying to write memory too narratively. And if you try to write like, memory as living, 
your narrative, of course you're making things up because real life is not like that. We do not live that way. We live simultaneously. The past and the present are always on our bodies and, uh, and in our bodies, and we live through our memories at every moment. And so that's always been what I felt like my task has been as a nonfiction writer and what interests me and why actuality you know, as a kind of realm to write and interest me. That's why I, why I love nonfiction writing. I think that would be a great blurb for the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about, about so if, if the linear um, can falsify our experience by imposing a, a, a direct narrative onto experience that's layered and faceted and recursive and is as much about the present as the past. Right. Um, we might think about the, a shape that seems to appear as the, the governing shape of the book, which is perhaps the circle. Um, yeah. So it opens with a scene of a tattoo. It ends with the image of someone being tattooed. The The opening is my body is the Middle West and the closing is almost the closing is mi- the Middle West is my body. Um, right. How, how, tell us a little bit about that structural thing. I don't think you'll give away any, any crucial plot points. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've always been drawn to the drawn to the circle as as the form of an essay and the form of a book. And um, I don't know if I have any any theoretical arguments for that. I think it just feels beautiful to me. I guess I want to I want to have that sense of completion. Um, I I want to have that sense of echoing and return. Maybe that's. Um, um, the, the part of me that, that listens to jazz, you know, um, sometimes I play Miles Davis for my students in order to give them a sense of what it means to both um, uh, work in a form but also uh, digress and experiment within that form. And so I'll play that, that, that kind of work that, you know, when you hear a theme, you hear a theme, you wander from the theme. You come back to the theme, you wander from the theme, you come back to the theme, you really, really, really go into outer space, then you come back to the theme, but then at the end, you repeat the theme, and so then it becomes complete. And I guess that is what a beautiful narrative feels like to me. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm certain there's a counter-argument to that. There's many ways to think about what makes a beautiful and complete thing, but that's my aesthetic. Oh. I'm not interested in a counter-argument at that moment. <laughs> well, okay, so this book is coming out. It's, it's just come out. Um, I hope it does wonderfully. It certainly deserves as wide a readership as it can find. Um, so I'm sure you'll be promoting it for a while. Are there any artistic projects that you're currently thinking about or plans for, for new pieces besides the one you're not allowed to write? But. Um, I am... There's a couple things I have going. I have an, another little novella-length piece that is looking for a home. It's called Apocalypse Darling. It's about um, going back to the to the mill region in the southeast side of Chicago for a for a, a wedding on my on the in-law side of my family and um, uh, ask questions about about fidelity and forgiveness. Um, it's a very short book. Um, I had tried to coin, I don't know if, if I'm just plain or if I'm serious, but I coined a term for it called the Acela because it's a, kind of a, a lyric essay um, with that's uh, uh, novella length, you know, so uh, and, and it's it's about maybe about 100 pages long and it's lots of, lots of white space. And right now uh, I have a, a 
friend who's a photographer who grew up in the same area as I did, and she's working on some images to go in the book. So it will be a kind of uh, another kind of mixed image and text book that I hope finds a home soon. Um, I also have uh, the beginnings of something that's about. It's 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 hard to really talk too much about what it is yet because it's pretty new, but it has to do with um, uh, uh, urban, the, the green city, the idea of sustainability in the city. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. I've since finishing Body Geographic, I still lived in Minneapolis at the end of, of Body Geographic and then that's where the book ends. But I, since that time I moved back to Chicago to take a new job. And so I'm again, another circle I'm back in the, back in Chicago again and thinking about this whole idea of, you know, the livable city and, um, you know, what do we do in cities to make them livable, human places? You know, even, even the environmentalists say that in, it's will be kinder to the earth for humans to live closer together in cities and to kind of leave, you know, the wilderness alone. And, and so how do we, how do we figure out how to do that? And I mean that both in the sense of, you know, rooftop gardens and rooftop farms and all that kind of thing, but also how we recreate ourselves in the city, how we find ways to, to make art and, and, um, you know, make erotic communities and, and, you know, live fully in our bodies in urban settings. And the vehicle for that, you know, um, I guess pun intended is the bicycle because I took up urban biking with quite a bit of fervor before I left Minneapolis. And I'm doing a bit of that and I'm still getting used to doing it in Chicago. Chicago's rougher. Um, uh, the bike, the bike, the, just the street are, are rougher. It's not as kind and gentle as Minneapolis, um, but I'm doing it as well as really thinking about walking and being the, you know, the, the, the flanous, you know, the female flanor who walks and observes and, you know, uh, inhabits the city as an observer. So that's, that's what the book is, but I couldn't tell you much about what that will look like in terms of form yet. Well, we'll direct our interested listeners to the blog of the same title, Deep Green right. City, and they can get a sneak preview of how you're working it out. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, that's going to be my, my early ideas. It seems right. to be that... And then I also have... A, have Please go oh, ahead. I, <laughs> I also have a book in progress about about creative nonfiction writing that's kind of half, half essay, half craft essay, where um, I, a piece of it just came out, and there's a, there's a new book that's just coming out um, this month called Bending Genre, where there's a piece in there called um, Autogeographies, um, that's where, where I talk about this whole idea about writing about actuality and... Um, I probably have about a, a about a half of a book in there that some of it's been published in various places, so that's in progress as well. It strikes me that one reason that you might have a difficult time just describing the book is not only the fact that it is in process, which is very hard to do to describe something right. that's in becoming, even and as you're may, working on it. Right, um, it may become something else. Exactly. But you're also interested in, in thinking outside of traditional genre categories, so you just can't default back. And I think that's what at least for me, makes you such an exciting writer is that you're just much more interested in, in seeing what you can create rather than finding a slot for something. 
Well, thank you. And I'm really interested in work that geographers and urban planners are doing as well. One of the things I'm really excited about in my new job at DePaul is I've been, there's a really strong geography department there and I've been meeting the geographers and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conversation because I think it will be bring really exciting new levels to my work. Well, Barry, we wish you all the best with it and thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. 